0: Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, if you will, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 7. We're going to see Noah come out of the ark with his family this week. Last week, to remind you, although you know the story, I'm sure, we saw how devastating and catastrophic the flood was, wiping out all life on earth in judgment for the sin that had been outlined in chapter 5 and then the beginning of chapter 6. But we saw that the Lord preserved Noah, Preserved his family because he was righteous, because he had faith, as the writer of Hebrews explains to us. That anticipatory faith that he knew someday the Messiah would come, although he didn't know his name, but he was looking for that. And like with Abraham, the Lord counted that faith as righteousness. And the Lord brought them through the storm. And last time we left them in the storm, and today we're going to get them out. And I want to read a verse from Psalm 103 to start us out tonight. Where it says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. For he does not deal with us according to our sins. But he says, thank you, Lord nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The posture of the Lord towards his people is compassion, and he does not always chide. You ever know somebody like a boss or a parent who was always chiding? No, you ever have a teacher in school that's all they knew how to do was chide and it seemed like they were always been out of shape about something when you walked in the door? The Lord's not like that. Even when the Lord needs to bring judgment, as in the case with the flood, He does not continue that judgment forever. We're going to see as we continue through the Old Testament that when God brings judgment even to a nation that deserves it, He judges them, but he doesn't grind their face in the dust beyond what is warranted. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, we're not going to turn there, but the Lord rebukes Assyria because he raised up Assyria to judge Israel. But when Assyria came in, they didn't just judge Israel. They were cruel and they were abusive to Israel. And the Lord's like, I told you to go in there and conquer them. I didn't tell you to do all that. I didn't tell you to skin people and hang their skins from the walls. So he says, after I'm done with Israel, I'm coming for you. So when God brings discipline into your life or permits you to go through a hard time, he is not cruel. He brings about relief. He gives us a new future. As long as we have life left, the Lord is planning what's next. He doesn't leave you in your judgment. And we're going to see today that this is exactly what God did. He established what we're going to call a new normal on the earth. And we've talked a lot about the uniformitarian belief that the world has always continued as it exists now. We know that before the flood, things were different. Well, now we're going to see the establishment of what we today call normal. It's going to relate to the climate. It's going to relate to the animals. It's going to relate even to the relationships between men. And we're, from this point on, pretty much going to be living in the same world that we know about. We've seen a lot of strange things in these early chapters, haven't we? People living to 900 years old and intercourse with demons and all kinds of other things. So this is when things change to what we have now. And for us, when we have something that God brings into our life or something that we bring upon ourselves, let's be honest, We need to be able to step beyond it when it's over. This means that we've got to learn to apply the lessons that we learn along the way. Sometimes God gives us new rules. God ever give you a rule that's not maybe applicable to everybody, but in order for you to obey what God told you to do, you've got to keep that rule? I know God's done that for me before. New attitudes of humility towards God. But here's the deal. We can stay stuck on the ark if we're not careful. We're stuck in the shell of what used to be. We're unwilling to move past the hard times that we go through. And then you become like petulant children, where (laughs) Johnny wanted to go to Chuck E. Cheese, but instead we're going to go to the zoo. So rather than enjoying the zoo, Johnny's going to be pouting around the zoo, not enjoying himself, because it's not what he wanted. That's a petulant child. Or you can be like, you ever see that movie Napoleon Dynamite? You can be like Uncle Rico. Always talking about back in 82, back when he was in high school playing football, and he's way too old to be talking about what happened back in high school. And it's embarrassing. We can be like that. We're always talking about the way it used to be and what could have been if things had stayed the way they were. But as Christians, our job is to accept the way things are and to move on. And lucky for us, God is always preparing a new future for us. And because it's the Lord, it's always a good future. And it's always a glorious future. Amen? So let's learn this together. There's also going to be a lot of great background information here because there's plenty to dive into. We are still in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, those foundational chapters, so a lot of important stuff. Let's read the first five verses here. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind, circle that word, wind, blow over the earth, and the waters subsided The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, so we left Noah floating with his family on a big ark, big barn floating in the middle of the the oceans, really. And it says here in chapter 8, verse 1, that God remembered Noah. Of course, you must not take this to mean that God forgot Noah. And he goes, oh, I knew I forgot something. Yeah, Noah, we'll take care of you. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's the opposite of that. He took action just as he promised. If, if you read it negatively, it makes a little more sense in English. Like if you say, but God did not forget Noah. God never forgot Noah. He remembered him. He took action. So 40 days and nights of rain said that the floodwaters prevailed for 150 days. So it's not raining anymore, but it's just water as far as the eye can see. And it says the Lord made a wind blow. That word for wind, we've seen several times in the Old Testament, is ruach, and it's the word translated spirit. Very similar here to what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 2, where it said the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Very, very similar. We're going to see this again in Exodus, where the Lord parts the Red Sea, and it says the Lord caused a wind to blow all night. So, these things are connected. It's very interesting to see that. So he made a wind blow, but you also can see the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, never left. He was always there. It says the fountains of the deep were closed up. We talked about that. These were these springs of water that basically irrigated the whole earth before God sent rain, and the Lord busted those open to flood the earth. The windows of heaven were closed, and I've mentioned several times there are some who see that as a a water vapor canopy basically that covered the whole world before the flood and the flood was when that thing came crashing down there's a lot to commend that idea but i don't think it's biblically certain so whatever it was there was a lot of water that fell from heaven and now the lord is saying that's enough fountains of the deep are closed the windows of heaven are closed what do we see here god is in complete control of his world There's nothing that's outside of God's control. The Spirit was always there. The Lord sovereignly caused it to rain, and he sovereignly caused it to stop raining. He sovereignly raised the waters. He sovereignly lowered them. Now, we're going to talk several times tonight about the fact that just about every culture in the world has a flood story. It's a very interesting apologetics point that the Native Americans, several different tribes, had a flood story like this one where there was one man who saved all the animals and floated around until it was over. The Babylonians had one that was very similar. The Greeks had a flood story. The Polynesian cultures have a flood story like that. And in particular, scholars like to compare the book of Genesis to the Babylonian story. The Epic of Gilgamesh is is one. The Enuma Elish is another one. And what they try to do is show, now, see, it's just the same kind of thing. But what I want to draw out tonight is the differences, not only is the book of Genesis way older than all these other things we've found, but it's better. For example, in the Babylonian story, when the gods flooded the earth, it says that the gods were panicked and afraid at what they had done. And they were unable to stop the flood. It, it, once they set the waters coming, they couldn't do anything to stop it. Well, what kind of God is that? You know, the Lord is in constant control, the Lord was never out of control during this time, and he never is, ever. God does not panic, especially over things that he himself does. So you can see how these cultures preserved the memory of the flood, but over time it became corrupted, and we understand that there's satanic influence there. But Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9, gives us a poetic description of the flood, and it's it's illustrative for us, too. Talking about the earth, he says, "'You covered it with the deep as with a garment.'" The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Isn't that cool? You brought the water. You took the water away. You told the mountains and the valleys where to go. You set a boundary for the sea. God is in control. Trials do not last one minute longer than God intends them to. Aren't you glad of that? I think the only exception to that is when we, by our rebellion and our sin, continue to insist on learning the same lesson over and over again. I know I've done that before. Now, the Lord had sent all these masses of water from heaven and from under the earth, so it says the waters are abating. Now, here's the question. Where did all that water go? Now, this is maybe a sensible question, but when you look at the globe, you know where it went. Like 70-something percent of our planet is covered with what? Water. That's where it all went. We have these big, immense basins that the water of the, of the oceans fills up. And that makes sense according to what Scripture tells us. If there were these great springs of water, these reservoirs that irrigated the whole earth so that you didn't need rain, and the Lord broke them open, after that's over and the Lord sends the water back, it all drained into what we now call the oceans. Which is why, if you read in the book of Revelation, it says that in the new heavens and the earth, there is no more sea. Because the seas and the oceans are a reminder of the judgment that God sent. So, very, very cool that these springs would have been emptied, the chambers would have collapsed, the valleys sank down, that psalm says. Not to mention the fact that the earth is under incredible upheaval at this point. And I've tried not to dive too far into this because I think it... Kind of speaks for itself, but the flood, especially as it's described here, accounts for any geological phenomena that people want to bring up. It's like, well, we have rock layers and they take a long time to form. Well, we've already talked about that. They don't need a long time, they usually take a long time, but during something catastrophic like Mount St. Helens erupting or things like that, or during a major flood, ironically enough, they can form very quickly. So if you've got a global flood, now all of a sudden we have global rock layers and global fossils. Why do we assume that it needed a long time? The flood is essential to understanding the world as it is, and as it will be, according to epistles of Peter. It even gives us a date. On the seventh month, on the 17th day, the ark came to rest. That's exactly five months after the rains came. Back in chapter 7, verse 11, it was the second month on the 17th day of the month that the rains came. So this is the seventh month. It's been five months that they first felt the the big ark grind to a halt as it ran aground in the mountains. Interesting. That word there for the ark came to rest, that word in Hebrew is tanach, and it's the same root word as the name noah so you could put it if you want to be a little cheeky you can say that the the ark noad on the mountains of ararat so this is what god was was doing he was bringing rest to the earth and the ark came to rest so whoever was writing this book apparently enjoyed a little wordplay it's kind of fun but it says it came to rest in the mountains of ararat the mountains of ararat are in armenia is the country It's landlocked between Turkey, Azerbaijan, Iran, and Georgia. So Ararat is down here. It's in the southwestern portion, and there's a mountain range that goes right here. You'll note it doesn't say the mountain of Ararat. There is one specific mountain in that range called Ararat, but the word in Hebrew is plural. So somewhere in that mountain range is where it came to rest. Pretty cool that we know a lot of detail about this story. You know, it's not saying that there was some stork came and flew the ark to the moon and then the ark came back down. You know, that, that's, that's what pagan stories are like. This is like, this is the date, this is where it happened, this is where we were. Which mountain, Noah? I don't remember. It was somewhere in the mountains of Ararat. And this is where they were. Now, contrary to what you may have heard, the ark has not been found. We are given a region only, right? We're not given a specific mountain peak. So it's also been a very long time since the ark was built. I would not be surprised if this thing has just rotted out. If they find it, I'll be very, very excited. But uh, you know, I, I also would not be surprised if they don't find it because it's, it's just wood. I don't know the durability of gopher wood because, as I said, we don't know what that is. We just know that it was two and a half months later, on the 10th month, the first day of the month. Two and a half months later, they started to see the other mountain peaks. So they were up high. Wherever they were, they were very high up because they run aground. They're not floating anymore, and it takes another two and a half months before they start to see the other mountain peaks. So it's interesting to see, when, by the time we get to the end, they spent most of their time on the ark aground in the mountains of Ararat rather than floating on the water itself. I don't know if I'd ever realized that before I made this study. Let's apply this to ourselves here. First Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. <laughs> no one knows what I'm going through. That's not what the Bible says. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Praise the Lord. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So you've got to see that. He's not going to give you anything that you can't endure, but in order to endure it, you've got to endure it God's way. Noah could not endure the flood on his own, but God gave him the ark. And if he was on the ark, then he was going to be just fine. Floods are going to come into your life. That's just the way of it. That's life. That's how it goes. There are a lot of different reasons God will bring a trial or a tribulation or a struggle into your life. Sometimes God brings a flood to mature you. You've been walking in immaturity, or there's something God needs to teach you, and the only way he can teach it to you is through hardship. So sometimes God will let those things come in. Sometimes it's disciplinary. God's got to break your hold on something. You're so attached to this relationship or so attached to this job or to this plan or money or whatever it is that God has to take it away from you to teach you not to trust in those things. Sometimes life just happens and we all go through things. We read this throughout the Bible that the world is not the way God wanted it at the beginning, and horrible things happen. And God does not always give us an explanation. I think an example of that is what we're going through right now. We, we don't have anybody to blame as much as everybody's been trying to blame for the pandemic. We're all dealing with it. So it's not like we've got to find the one guy, and you know, we're going to throw them into the sea like Jonah, and then it'll all go away. Sometimes things just happen. And sometimes, and this is the hard one, floods come because we make a mess ourselves. Isn't that tough? When you're the one that's made the mess, and you can look back at the exact moment that if I had turned right instead of left, this would not have happened. You ever get pulled over, and you can think to yourself, why didn't I just slow down a little bit? I stop at that stop sign every day. Why did I have to go rolling through it today? And you can break it down and it eats you because I did this. And you want to get mad at the cop for pulling you over, but you can't because you know what you did. It's like that with the Lord, too. Sometimes we have to watch everything that we loved and everything that we ever hoped for wash away. But you need to know that God is never going to be cruel with you in those moments. God doesn't want to grind you into the dirt God will deliver you out of those things. He'll make you wiser. He'll make you stronger. And here's the best part. Even if you're the one that made the mess, God will still use it. He will still use it to make you wiser and stronger. So when you're in the flood, which we all kind of are in a flood right now, for greater or for worse. If you're in the flood, you've got to call out to the Lord and start getting your heart ready to learn the lesson. Because when it's over, you're going to need to make some changes. Floods don't last forever, and when they're done, you've got to be ready to get up and move on because the Lord is not going to make it last forever. The flood didn't even last forever. Verse 6, so they're on the mountain. Water's going down. They're starting to see the, the rest of these mountains here. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So, ever since the surrounding landscape began to be visible, it's been 40 days, and Noah is going to launch a little reconnaissance mission here. He's going to send out some birds, because this is kind of his only option at this point. He sends out a raven. Ravens are big. They're tough. They can be kind of (laughs) mean. And they are carrion eaters, which means they eat dead things. So if you need a bird to be your first person out of the ark to see how things are going, raven's a pretty good choice. We don't often talk about this, but you can imagine that when they got out of that ark, the whole earth would be covered with the corpses of every man, woman, child, and animal that had lived. The flood would have washed some of that away, but not all of it. Not yet. And it does not return. So, okay, the raven was okay. The raven was able to go, and it it didn't fly around looking for something and didn't find it and then come back, so it probably found a place to land. Let's try a dove now. It's a more gentle creature. The dove isn't going to survive like a raven's going to survive. It's delicate. It's gentle. So, okay, the raven has showed us that the water is going down. The dove is going to show us, is it okay for us to get out yet? The dove returns the second time with evidence of vegetation, and on the third, it did not return. So, okay, the dove is able to be out there and to be okay. Now, obviously, The sense of this passage is that Noah is using these birds to understand how things are outside of the ark. But I I hope you'll let me spiritualize this passage a little bit, because I think it really ties into what we're talking about. 2 Chronicles 16, the first part of verse 9, says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. There are times as I said, when the Lord permits us to lose everything. Sometimes it's our own fault. Sometimes it's his wisdom. He knows what's best. He needs to take something good out of your hand so that he can put something great in your hand. He's providential that way. And when we've experienced the devastation of a trial in our lives, maybe it's an illness that you've had to walk through yourself or somebody you know. Maybe it's a death in the family or a good friend financial crisis, a relationship falling apart, when those things happen and they start to come to an end, the Lord begins to look for growth. He begins to look throughout your life to see what's what's happening in here. How, How are we doing? This is why we call them trials. You ever wonder about that? To try something is to test it. The testing of your faith, James calls it. When we have struggles that we go through, it's a test of our character. It's a test of our inner life. It's when we get to see if there's any substance to our souls or if it's just fluff. You ever watch a boxing match or a mixed martial arts thing where there's one guy before the fight starts, and he's talking trash, and he's loud, and he's in the other guy's face, and then he gets in there, and he gets knocked out in the first couple seconds? Ronda Rousey did that to a couple people a few times. It's like they had a lot of talk. They looked really tough, they looked really intimidating, but when the chips were down, they had nothing. It was all talk. This is what trials do for our lives. They show us is there anything there or does it just look promising? There comes a point in your life when potential isn't enough anymore. Whatever is left when you've lost everything is who you really are. It's no good to be in the middle of a trial and you're acting out and you're being miserable to be around and you're you're fearful and you're desperate and you're saying, "Well, this is so not like me." Well, it's not like you when things are good. But what we've discovered about you is that when things are tough, this is what's really underneath all of that. Or sometimes our trials reveal us to be more mature than we thought we were. You ever go through something and your your wife or your husband just comes alive? You're like, you were always so annoying and you drove me crazy, but then that thing happened and you just took control and knew what to do and you trusted the Lord and you were right where we needed to be? That's what trials do. So let me ask you this question. What have your trials revealed you to be? Let's take the example of this pandemic. If you were to just judge your character based on your reaction to the way things have gone the last few months, how would we evaluate your character? What kind of person... Have you demonstrated yourself to be? Has there been very little left over? Is the flood came, and when the floods began to recede, all that was left was bitterness and selfishness and fear and anger, plenty of stuff for the raven to pick at, but nowhere for the dove to land on. What the Lord desires is to find somewhere in your life a place where the Spirit can come to rest. The dove is a picture of the Spirit, right? Looking for a place in your life where He can come to rest. The fruit of patience So what trials can produce. Patience. Hopefully, the longer you live, the more patient you are under stress and under struggle. Endurance or peace. Your peace is not really touched anymore by the floods around you, because you've been through so many of them. Contentment. You've lost everything two or three times, so you don't really put your trust in those things anymore. Or love. You've gone through so many of these things. You know what it's like to be in the middle of it, And you know what people around you need. So rather than that making you bitter towards everybody else for not loving you, you've become a loving person to them. That's what the Spirit's looking for. James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. You all know this one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why would I count it all joy when I meet trials of various kinds? Don't you know what's been happening in 2020, James? You're telling me to count it all joy? Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Make no mistake, the way you act during the flood is who you really are, because everything frivolous is swept away. You're put through the ringer, and everybody can see it. Maybe it's a wake-up call for you. Maybe the way you act when the chips are down is a wake-up call. Do the people around you dread going through hard times? Not because they can't handle it, but because they know on top of everything else, they're going to have to carry you and deal with you. That is not the kind of person you want to be. You want to be the kind of person that people can lean on when the chips are down. The kind of person that people are calmed by because you're there. When everything's going crazy and then you walk into the doors of the hospital and everybody just calms down, it's going to be okay. She's here. He's here. So evaluate your life. We've all been going through it this year. You don't have to answer out loud, but answer for yourself. This year, have you risen to the occasion? Can you, with appropriate godly humility, be proud of the way you've conducted yourself? Or have you been exposed as a fraud in front of everybody? Talk about how much you trust the Lord. You sing all the songs. God, no matter what, I'm going to trust you. Then the trial comes and boom. You're angry. You're afraid. You're lashing out at people. You're permitting yourself to indulge your flesh. I'm going through a hard time. I deserve this. The good news, though, is that even if you have failed the test, and some of us have, maybe you've had some better months and some not so great months. You were fine when you thought it was only going to be a few weeks, but now it's been a few months, and now it's been harder. The good news is that even if you have failed the test, it can be useful if you allow it to teach you. If you allow yourself to look in the mirror of the 2020 pandemic and all the rest of the stuff we've been going through, to let that show you who you really are and then say, okay, let's make some changes. Lord, what do you got for me? God doesn't show us things for no reason. It can be useful if you allow it to teach you. Maybe you've learned to ignore frivolous things throughout the trials in your life. Once you go through something real serious, it's really hard to engage in childish stuff, isn't it? You're like, you know what? This is is useless. This doesn't help real life. I feel kind of silly going back to these things. I feel kind of silly holding my phone this much and swiping through this many things, to use one example. Maybe it's taught you, I need to be praying I need to be in the word because if we get another pandemic in 2021 and I have been reading my Bible and praying the same amount, I'm done for. So you're like, you know what? We're getting this done. We're getting on our knees. We're getting in the word and I don't care who knows it. Maybe it's taught you to abstain from things, to abstain from gossip. Maybe your release, we always love to use that. I just need a release to, to get this off my chest. And you've used gossip as your release, talking about people. People you know or people far away or people in political office and you've been using that gossip to release the tension in your life. That is not a godly way to handle that. And you've watched how it's just made everything worse around you. Gossip does not make anything better ever, does it? If you make a friend, I'm just trying to be friendly. You make a friend through gossip, that's not a good friend. That's why it's always funny when Kids used to come into my youth group, and it was usually the ladies that that this stunt happened with where they say, hey, I met a boy, I'm gonna bring him to this thing. I'm like, oh, where'd you meet him? And they don't wanna tell me where they met him. (laughs) Like, if I tell you where I met him, then you're gonna say he's a bad guy, but you haven't met him yet. It's like, well, where'd you meet him? (laughs) How did you make that friend? Well, we really connected over backbiting this woman at the office that we hate so much. Yikes, (laughs) watch out. (laughs) Or has it taught you to not permit yourself to be moody. Maybe you've seen, maybe not in yourself, but maybe everybody around you, you're like, okay, we're all going through this thing. Why is everybody so upset? Why is everybody letting their emotions just go up and down? It's making it so much harder. And you're like, you know what? I'm not gonna be that way anymore. I'm gonna be the steadfast one. I'm gonna be the one that people can count on. So even if you do fail the test, if you can learn from it, then it's okay. Doesn't make it any easier. But at least you're getting something useful out of it. Because the Lord is looking for people he can use to represent him on the earth, to be Jesus in these dark situations. But first he's got to strip your life down to the bare bones. He's got to send a flood and scrub everything out so that the only thing that's left are the things that are in his image and that he can cultivate, a place where his Holy Spirit can land. Trials will either be the worst memories of your life or Those things for which you are soberly grateful later on. Isn't it funny when you hear somebody say, that was the hardest time of my life, but I wouldn't change a thing. We all kind of roll our eyes like, yeah, okay. No, but it's true though. Because if something terrible causes you to see yourself and see that you're inadequate and that you're shallow, and the Lord uses it to transform you, you're like, no, if I trade that out, then I haven't learned anything. And that's all up to you. Are you going to let yourself learn the lessons God's going to teach you? Or are you going to choose this as an opportunity to act out and say, I'll get it together when things are normal again? Well, as we're going to see here, you might not get normal back. So you've got to let the Lord change you rather than relying on your circumstances around you. Let's go on to verse 13 now. In the 601st year, that is the 601st year of Noah's life, if you're keeping score at home. In the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So it's the first month, the first day, Noah is able to open the ark and to look out, but they do not leave the ark until the second month on the 27th day. So that's almost 2 whole months before they actually leave the thing. Why? Because Noah waited for a word from the Lord. You might evaluate a situation and think everything is good to go, but God knows better than you do. So you wait until God gives you the go ahead before you move. Maybe it was that There was a lot of decay and rotting things going on. And the Lord's like, Noah, you really want to wait until all this is done. I don't know. Who knows? God did. And it was smart for Noah to listen to him. And they exit the ark with all the animals. By the time they finally get out, it has been 12 months and 11 days since the rains came. And now it's finally over. 12 months and 11 days. They were in that ark for a year. You think, you're claustrophobic. But they come out of the ark, and you know, I'm sure it was a happy moment, obviously. They're they're excited to get out of the ark. But in all the the kids' stories, when they get out of the ark, there's always the big rainbow. We'll talk about the rainbow next week. But everything's, you know, green and beautiful, and the birds are tweeting and singing. Probably not quite like that. You've got to imagine the state of the earth. The paradise of the days of Eden is gone. The world in which we live. The hostile world that we live in, that is what Noah opens the ark to see. Consider the damage all of that would have done. Let's take a minute and think about this. The earth, number one, would have been totally barren. There's nothing left. It's all gone. All the trees, all the plants, it's all been uprooted. The only things that are surviving are less than a year old, so there's nothing big. you got maybe some scrub brush around, but it's barren. New mountains, new valleys would have formed. You can even ask the question, were there any mountains or valleys before? Because we don't read about them until later, after the whole earth was just thrown together. The water smashed the the earth together, and the springs were breaking open. And I imagine there was probably some aftershock effects going on, too. Seismic activity. Remember, the waters have receded into the former depths. So now you've got these giant oceans that were not there before. We know that the crust of the earth today, the tectonic plates, they move and they shift and they smack into each other. That's probably a result of the flood because everything would have broken apart. The climate would be different. We're going to read about it in a second. The water cycle is in place finally because up to the flood, there had been no rain on the earth, the word tells us. The Lord watered the ground through that natural irrigation and that natural mist that he caused to come up from the earth. Well, now that's over. And so we have the rains that we have now, which would have led to the variability of temperatures in the world. Because the climate is different. Now, instead of the world that God has made, you've got glaciers, you've got deserts, you've got places where things can grow, you've got places where things can't. We know from geology, and we think, depending on how you interpret some things that we'll get into later, but we know at least from history and archaeology, there would have been an ice age. Why? Because you just covered the whole world with water. Parts of it are going to get cold now, and it's going to freeze over. This is not a nice place. The animals are going to spread out all over the world. Some of them are going to survive. Some of them are going to thrive. Some of them are going to die off. Seemingly those who were more suited for a warmer climate. And nothing's going to grow as big or live as long as it used to. 2 Peter 3, verse 6 says, The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Noah's probably happy to get out of the ark, but the world is nothing like the one he knew. Not only that, he's up on top of a mountain, you guys. Things barely grow up on the mountains in the best of times. Mount Ararat itself, we don't know if it was that mountain, but it's 17,000 feet up. So they're opening the door to the ark, and the sun is not breaking through the clouds. It's cold, and the wind is whipping and whistling and blowing, and it's just rocks and scrub everywhere. And they get out of the ark, and they just can't believe their eyes. Where is everyone? It's all gone. Nothing is left. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Not only that, everyone they have ever known is dead. And the Lord tells them, all right, time to get out. You know, after we go through something really tough, stepping past that can be the hardest part. Because we don't know. It might be a new world. It's hostile to us. We don't know what to expect. And sometimes we can plant ourselves in the ark, go back to the last place we were comfortable, and we act like scared kittens or scared puppies. You ever bring a rescue puppy home, and they get in the corner, and they're scared to come out? Or they get under the table, and they're scared to come out? When we brought my dog home, he had never walked on grass before because he had been abused, and he'd grown up in this, this little shelter thing. And it was a long time to get him to start acting like a normal dog. We can be like that. Or we can be like pouting kids. Because we realize what we've lost and we refuse to move on. And we refuse to accept the new normal. But we cannot stay in the past, you guys. Even if what we've left behind was better. The world that Noah was going into was obviously worse than the one they had lived in before. But he had to get out and keep going. God is able to take what was ruined and remake it into something wonderful. We look out at the world now and we go, well, come on, it's not so bad. Of course, that comes after thousands of years of taming the world and figuring out how to live in it. God can take what has been ruined and remake it into something wonderful wonderful. Even things that are destructive, like when we see hurricanes blow through or volcanoes go off or something, there's just something majestic and glorious about it. You ever go back on your back porch and watch the thunderstorms roll in? You're like, man, look at all that. And your wife is out there, come inside. (laughs) Maybe not yours. Because the Lord can take even what was not the ideal and make it awesome. Joel 2.25, said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. When Job lost all of his children, after it was all over, the Lord gave him the same number of children back. The Lord restores what is stolen from us. Not necessarily to the same dollar amount or whatever. Sometimes it's like Noah, where it's different. It might even be worse and harder. But the Lord's like, you don't worry about that. I'll worry about that. You just get out and do what I've called you to do. God is merciful. He's made this terrifying, hostile world into a place of beauty, to a place of joy. He can do the same thing for you. Don't hang on to the past. We get like Gollum with the ring with the past sometimes. Something that happened, like a relationship that didn't work or a pain that we went through. And even though we might appear to have moved forward, every now and then we pull it out of our pocket and we're brooding over it. We're obsessing over it. And we're thinking about how it could have been and how I wish it had gone this way. And you bring out all those old hurts and all those old pains and all those old resentments. And you're maybe even hating somebody that's way long dead. And it wears on your soul. Don't do that. The Lord wants to take that and give you beauty for ashes, Isaiah said. They're going to be better in the future. It may not be the same, but you can't hang on to that. That's That's over. We're Christians. We face reality the way it is. We move forward and say, God is still with us, and that's enough. Come out of the ark, you guys. If you're stuck, it's time to get out. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So the first thing Noah does after he gets out of the ark is to make a sacrifice to the Lord from every clean animal. This is praise for a safe journey. It's a thank you, Lord. But it's also an act of humility and repentance, too. Saying, Lord, we're still yours. We can't do this without you. We need your help. It says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Now, that's not crass materialism here. Not that God goes, wow, that's good barbecue. Okay, yeah, I'll help you out, Noah. It's a picture of God seeing Noah's faith as expressed through the sacrifice. Although humanity has been reduced, the ones that are left are faithful. And the Lord is pleased by that. Contrast that to the Babylonian story. Their flood only lasted seven days and seven nights. And it says that when the gods smelled the sacrifice, they swarmed around it like flies because they were so hungry after seven days. Our God does not need to eat. That is not why he commanded sacrifices. Ridiculous. The Lord purposes in his heart, he will never again curse the ground because of man, and that he will never again strike down every living creature. Now, some of that is easy to understand. The Lord says, I will not exercise the right of judgment against people again until the end. Although he would be just to do so, right? If God wanted to judge us today, he would be well within his rights to do that. Because we have violated his law just as much as Cain and Lamech and all those guys. But the Lord said, look, the problem of sin is so deep that just judging people and starting over again with the good ones isn't going to work. I've got to do something deeper than that. And you know what the answer to that was. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the Lord saw that sacrifice. Not only was he saying, I'm going to delay judgment out of mercy. He's saying, now sin has been atoned for and I can offer forgiveness, not just a stay of execution." So we know what that part means, and we'll talk about that more next week. But what does it mean when he says, I will never again curse the ground? This was uh, the one that cooked my noodle while I was studying for this. Because the only curse we know of so far is chapter 3, verse 17, when he said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. And we know from Romans 8 and elsewhere that that curse remains in effect. So why is he saying, I will never again curse the ground? Well, I think if you look at verse 22, you see the answer. He says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. He's saying the seasons and the cycles of the earth will be consistent from now on. Which raises an interesting question that maybe is a little speculative, but I think it's kind of fun. Were the seasons not consistent before? Remember back in Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29? It says when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, "Here was the prophecy over Noah's life. Okay, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands." I think it is possible biblically. Although if you want to fight me about it, I'm not interested in that. It is possible that. Before the flood, the Lord had severely restricted the produce of the earth and restricted the regularity of the seasons based on the obedience of man. Otherwise, why is he saying, I'm not going to mess with that stuff anymore? He says, I'm, not, I'm, I'm done messing with seed time and harvest and day and night and hot and cold. I'm not going to do that anymore. I think it's possible that before this, It was dependent upon man. It was dependent upon the sacrifices. It was dependent upon their obedience, which is why when Lamech has a son, he says, Lord, please let this be the guy that delivers us from all that stuff. Because remember, just about everybody else was wicked on the face of the earth. He was hoping that Noah would be relief from all that. And Now, Noah was obviously not the solution to sin. He didn't provide relief to the curse from the Garden of Eden. But I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. Either way, we know that the Lord is refusing to send another flood on the earth. This is where what we know as the normal cycles and seasons and laws of nature begin to take effect. This is when God essentially says, I, I'm not going to mess with this stuff as much. I'm not going to mess with it. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to let it operate according to its natural laws, except in certain instances, and we call those miracles, and we call them miracles because they are special cases so those who say all things have continued since the very beginning this is why peter comes in and says they forget that it hasn't continued that way that started when the flood was over so i think this is what we're seeing here very interesting point for me to to think about that and i think it just draws out what we've seen several times that the world before the flood that world has perished it's gone and it was so strange and different from what we see today because we only have experienced with the what they call post-diluvian, the after-the-flood world. As it says in Matthew five forty-four through 45 Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And it could be that this is the point where the Lord said, That's what I'm going to do. I I can't treat them all as individuals because they're all full of sin. So in my grace, I'm going to give all of them a fair shot at life. I'm going to give them all a chance to live and to multiply and to be happy. Ecclesiastes talks about that an awful lot. And we know from Acts 17, which we read not too long ago, that before Jesus came, the Lord overlooked the sins of the people. He says, I'm not going to deal with this yet. But in Acts 17, 30, and 31, Paul makes the point, that's over now. Jesus has come. The the hope that we were all looking for has come. So now, everybody is commanded to repent. And we'll get into the differences between the different ages or the different dispensations when we get to next week. What do we learn from this? I think that we learn to be merciful with each other and to be humble when we're approaching God. Noah did not dare to presume on his own righteousness, even though he was the only one with his family that survived the flood. He comes out, and the first thing he does is offer a sacrifice. And even the Lord, who has every right to be just in every situation, comes out and says, you know, if I'm going to do this every time it gets too wicked, we're going to be doing this a lot. So you know what? I'm just going to give them a chance. I'm going to let them live. I'm going to be merciful. And I think it is important for us to know in a, in a time in our history where we are rediscovering our love of justice, you could say, it's important to keep in mind that even the Lord tempers his justice with mercy and that the goal is not for everything to be perfectly just, but for us to be loving and compassionate and merciful to each other, just as the Lord has been. Justice is a hard master, as I've said. Justice is the flood. Mercy is the ark, and that's where we're trying to live, right? Right. Well, let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, coming to the end of today. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Every nature documentary you've ever seen about sharks or tigers, they always say, don't worry, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. Well, there's biblical evidence for that. There you go. Into your hand they are delivered. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6 is worth underlining. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In the Babylonian story, after the flood, the gods say to themselves, the problem is man. There's way too many people. So we've got to find a way to keep people from filling the earth because they're the problem. So this is when they invented things like miscarriage and barrenness, according to the Babylonian legend. Not so with the Lord. The Lord goes right back to what he said to Adam at the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. This is the pro-life passage, verses 1 through 7, in every sense of the word. The Lord does not say, man is sinful, therefore we've got to get rid of them all. He says, Man is sinful, but I love them so much. Be fruitful and multiply. God turns Noah loose on the earth and gives him and his family the same mandate that he gave to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. When God starts over, when God helps us start over, he doesn't look back. He doesn't hold things over your head. He says, go ahead, but don't you forget, I remember what you did when you were 25. That would be a very, very hard way to live. Don't forget. We're going to have to deal with that someday. God says, Nope, let's just go. He moves on and He gives us permission to do the same. God's more gracious with us than we are with ourselves sometimes. We think, What I've done is so bad, I've got to wallow in it for the rest of my life. The Lord says, Isn't the blood of my son powerful enough to cover that for you? Let's go. Let's not stay here. Let's keep going. However, there are consequences to our actions. And the Lord informs Noah here of what things are going to be like in the new world. This is connected to the covenant of Noah, which we shall examine in detail next week. That's verse 8 through 17. But for now, I'm just going to look at the the new normal, you could say. First of all, see in verse 2 that the animals were struck with the fear of man. Very interesting, because that means before this, the deer didn't run off into the woods when you spooked it. Isn't that interesting? And he also says in verse 5, talking about the animals, he says, from every beast I will require your lifeblood. He's saying if an animal kills a man, that animal is going to be held responsible. I don't really know too much what that's supposed to mean, but it is very interesting to think about. It could be that before the flood, even the animals were so corrupted by sin that they were wild and ravenous and tearing people apart. And so the Lord goes, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you at the top of the food chain, And I'm going to put the fear of man into all these animals. Just interesting to think about. Secondly, I already mentioned it. He gave mankind permission to eat animals. That's verse 3. Before, back in chapter 1, verse 29, God told Adam and Eve, every tree, every fruit, every green thing is yours for food. Now the Lord expands that. And he says, every moving thing that lives shall be yours for food. But there's an interesting thing here, that the Lord makes an important distinction about blood, that you are not to eat the blood. We're going to see this established in the law of Moses later on, that the blood must be drained out of the animal as an act of respect. Isn't that cool? The Lord's like, even the life of an animal is so valuable, you don't just get to kill it and start eating it before it dies. You kill it, you butcher it, you drain the blood, and then you may cook it. So everybody wants to talk about how Oh, the Native American cultures had such a respect for nature. We've got that too. We just understand that we are not them. But the Lord says, even though you are greater than they are, you're still going to show the same love and the same respect for them that I do. Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. In the law of Moses, it said, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, now don't think a rare steak here. Think blood like you thinking of blood. It's disgusting. If you do that, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Almost as if the Lord was preparing us for someone else's blood that was going to wash everything away, right? And that's tied to the third change here, which is the mandate of capital punishment for anybody who kills anyone else. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is also the establishment of laws, the establishment of government. The Lord's like, look, I'm now putting a rule in place, and it is up to you to enforce this. By man shall his blood be shed. All of these things are put into place to preserve life. Do you see that? He says, I'm going to make the animals afraid of you so that they're not going to kill you. And when you eat the animals, you don't get just to butcher them and leave them for dead and call it a day. And, he says, if anybody kills anybody else, it's the death penalty for them. He says, you and your family, Noah, are not to be like Cain. You're not to be like wicked Lamech. Not Noah's father, but the other Lamech. Remember who said, Cain was avenged sevenfold. I'll avenge myself 77-fold. The Lord is like, no, no, no. We are pro-life not just talking about abortion. We are pro-life as God's people. The Lord created a world full of life. The New Testament would say that we are creatures of the day. Even Proverbs chapter 12 verse 10. I wasn't quite sure where to fit this verse in, but you have to read it when you're talking about Noah. Talking about respecting all life. It says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. You can tell a lot about somebody by the way they treat their animal, can't you? It might be all smiles to you, but then the dog walks up and they kick that thing across the yard. You're like, no, I don't think I want you babysitting my kids after all. (laughs) Now we understand we are not animals. We are greater than animals. We are created in God's image. But at the same time, you don't get to say, well, I'm greater than you, therefore I'm going to abuse you. We don't get to do that. And we know that intuitively, but it's good to know that there's biblical mandate for it. And all three of those things are repeated in the New Testament. Romans 14, (laughs) it's actually kind of an interesting passage. He says, you're allowed to eat meat, so vegetarians back off, is what he says in chapter 14 of Romans. He also says, and if you eat meat, leave the vegans alone. Let them do their thing. Just mind your own business, basically. In Acts 15, 29, remember the apostles sent out the letter to the churches that said to abstain from blood. Same thing. We kind of do that culturally, but there is biblical reasons behind that. You don't eat blood. And we kind of go, ew, who would want to eat blood? Well, you'd be surprised. And we also know from 1 Peter chapter 2 and elsewhere, we are to respect the government's authority over our lives. Paul said the government does not bear the sword in vain. That it's God's instrument to execute righteousness on the earth. And to answer a question that many people have raised, there is no contradiction between valuing life and affirming what the Bible says about capital punishment. Life is so valuable that nobody who is frivolous and takes life can be permitted to live. It is the ultimate deterrent and God gave man in his societies that authority right here in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. We also know that we're supposed to value mercy, but the Lord tells us, you're not going to let people run around who are killing other people. Says, that is too serious. The Lord is trying to prevent things like you saw in Aztec culture. When Cortez came to Mexico way back in the day, and they came to the city of Tenochtitlan. We've got an artist rendition of that that we can get up here. You see these big pyramid looking things that they had and the conquistadors, as they were called, they recorded that these steps that went all the way to the top were thick and spongy with dried blood. Because at the top of those things, they would ritually sacrifice and engage in ritual cannibalism of their fellow human beings. They would create these big, tall stacks of skulls that they would dry out and they would leave at the foot of these things. And this was part of the reason why the conquistadores destroyed this city. And, you know... As times have gone on, it's been several hundred years, scholars began to say, well, that's just an example of imperialism. They made those stories up. There's no evidence that that actually happened. They weren't eating people's hearts like they said they were. They made that up so that they could take their land. But actually, just a few years ago, when they were excavating some of these sites, they found stacks of thousands of human skulls that had been decapitated. And they found all this artwork of them cutting people open and eating their hearts and drinking their blood. This is what the Lord is trying to prevent. We think, why why would we need those rules? That, That would never happen. It has happened. And it does continue to happen in places around the world. There are aborigine cultures down in Australia who have had similar cannibalistic rituals for the coming of age ceremonies of their young men. And sometimes our academics try to say, now we see this as grisly and disgusting, but we just don't understand their culture. There are some things that are bigger and broader than culture. And the Lord is telling us right here, you're not going to let this happen. So you see that not only the climate and the geology of the earth has changed, but God made changes to the animal kingdom, and he established new laws for men as well. And, you know, if you look at the way things are now, it's like, hey, great, we get to eat meat. I grilled fajitas for the first time the other day. I loved it. We say, hey, look, we're freer now. We don't have the same rules they did. I'm so glad I don't have to just eat fruit and veggies and all those things. But, you know, in other ways, things are much lesser now than they were before. We know that the demons were bound in the abyss, and we're glad for that. But it does feel a little pang of nostalgia when you consider the interaction that people used to have with angels, doesn't it? When they were close enough to have conversations with each other and speak to one another. The seasons were set in cycles, and we're sitting here speculating, what was that light? What what else could there be? We don't even know. That the Lord maybe was directly involved when he was going to send the rain and when he was going to send the sun and the winter and those things. And the most magnificent animals died off as a result of this. When we get to the book of Job, we'll discuss this more. But in Job 40, it references the behemoth, which it says was an enormous animal that stands with its mouth in the river and its tongue is long like a cedar and probably referring to some sort of dinosaurish type animal. And he talks about Leviathan, the long-necked serpent that lives in the ocean and the water and that nobody tries to catch with a hook because you're not going to forget that fight. It's going to drag your boat under. And we have, of course, fossils and records of dinosaurs and mammoths and these big, enormous, majestic animals. And some of them, you're kind of glad they're gone because you don't want to find one of those things in your backyard. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's, it's all gone. It's over. People were living for a thousand years, not anymore. We say, why does life feel so short? I don't think God intended it to be this short. So yeah, things are different now, and they might be better in some ways for us, but in another way, it's like the majesty of God's original creation was gone. But the Lord never looks back. What's done is done. Maybe you have felt that same regret after a trial or a tragedy in your life where something changes And it rocks your whole world and you sit there and think yeah things are nice now but you know how it used to be when they were still around when i still lived there when i still had this before i learned about that a lot of times you look on our childhood back that way back before you were too young and too innocent to know about all the problems that were going on between your family members for example or if you enjoyed high school a lot of people get stuck in that That's the last time they were really happy, and they understood the rules of life, and there wasn't a ton of pressure on them, and it was a happy time for them. And it's over, and they don't know what to do. But we can't can't obsess over that. We can't obsess over the way things were or the way they could have been if something had been different. I'll end with this story. When the Jews returned from the exile in Babylon, they tried to rebuild the temple— And they had a big party in Ezra chapter 3 after they finished the foundation. And it said, all the youngsters rejoiced and cheered at the new foundation that was laid. But all the old folks that had seen the old temple wept when they saw the foundation. I don't know how you can tell a building's going to be bad just by looking at the foundation. But apparently that's all they needed. And it said, you couldn't even distinguish between the celebration of the young people and the weeping and the wailing of the old people. And then in Haggai, the prophet Haggai chapter 2, Speaks to the situation. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Is there a time in your life that you look back at as your former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, all you people, for I am with you, declares the Lord. My spirit remains in your midst. The spirit of God is still over the waters of your life. Fear not. For thus says the Lord, once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And that's what God wants to say to your life. The later glory is going to be greater than the former. It might be different. This temple was smaller. It was less significant, but that's the temple that Jesus came to. So which one would you rather be in? It's the same thing with your life. Some of you are afraid to leave the ark, and you might have been afraid for years to move on from something. You cannot accept the way things are. You'd rather brood over the way things should have been. But what's done is done. We've got to grow up and just accept that life happens and you can't go backwards. The floods in your life reveal to us who we really are. And as painful as that may be, if you don't move forward, you're never going to grow and change and improve. Our God is the God who redeems what is lost, amen? He restores what's been broken. Your future might be different. You might have sinned and done something that completely altered the trajectory of your life. That might not be what God had willed for you at first, but you know what the Lord does? The Lord comes back to you and adapts and says, okay, let's leave that behind. This is the way things are now, and here's how we're going to go forward. And in Christ Jesus, we have a better hope than the hope that Noah had. Noah lived in anticipation of the promise being fulfilled. We get to look back at the fulfillment of the promise and say, thank you, Lord. We're not waiting for the serpent's head to be crushed. His head has already been crushed. We're not waiting for judgment to stop hanging over our heads. Judgment isn't hanging over our heads anymore because it was all poured out on Jesus at the cross. And just as Noah passed through the waters, Peter says when we pass through the waters of baptism, we're coming to a new life and a new world. We have the hope of Christ's return. We get to spend forever in heaven, and the Lord's going to create a new earth with no more sea. And we're going to look back on this world, and we're going to be like, man, that was like nursery school, man. We thought it was so great, and we're going to laugh about it. Remember how cool we thought those mountains were? Yeah, we thought we were something, didn't we? Those buildings we built, ooh, they were so tall. This is just the meantime, you guys. Don't let it get to you. Don't be afraid of the new normal. Don't be afraid to accept who you have been revealed to be. You've got to start there so that you can go forward and have faith that God's going to lead you out of the ark and into a new world. And it might be different and it might be worse than what could have been at first. But the Lord goes, but I'm going to take that and I'm going to turn it around so that the latter glory will be even greater than the former